Gospel of John, chapter 13. And we'll start reading in verse 31 and read down to chapter 14, verse 10. So John, chapter 13, verse 31. Therefore, when he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but my Father abiding in me does his works. Well, I had us read all of that to provide a little context, but we'll be focusing today on chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you Maybe also. John chapter 13 through John 17 is sometimes called the upper room discourse because of where it was given. It was given in the upper room, a place called the upper room. But it would be better, I think, to call it the farewell discourse because what we have in these chapters, John 13 through 17, what we have is we have Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure, his imminent departure. 
and he's preparing them for the time when he will no longer be with them in the flesh. If you go back up to chapter 13, verse 33, he addresses his disciples. He says, little children, and then incredible, little children, just the kindness of his heart there. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He was soon to lay down his life, and the disciples could not follow him in that. But ultimately, when he says, where I'm going, you cannot come, I think he's referring to the fact that he's leaving this earth and ascending back into heaven, which is made clear in 14, 1 through 3. And being the good friend that Jesus was, he doesn't leave without saying goodbye. Uh, But far more than just saying goodbye, he actually takes the time to thoroughly prepare his disciples for what is coming. And that fact alone ought to speak loudly to us about the heart of Christ towards his people. Now, what do I mean? Well, if there was ever a time in his life when Jesus would have been forgiven for thinking just a little bit about himself, it would be here. He was the one going to the cross. He was the one about to face the wrath of God against sin, not the disciples. They should have been encouraging him. They should have been helping and comforting him. Instead, it's just the opposite. Jesus takes no thought for himself. And isn't this just like the Lord Jesus Christ? He takes no thought for himself, but uses the final hours before his death to prepare the disciples for his leaving. He knows that his departure is going to be difficult, for his friends to bear. So he takes time to prepare them for what they're going to face. But what's important for us to realize here today, 2,000 years after these words were spoken, is that the situation that Jesus was preparing the disciples for here in John 14 is the very same situation that we find ourselves in right now. Jesus isn't here, he's no longer here in the flesh, he's gone. And we are also, just as the disciples were after his ascension, we are living in the time between his first coming into the world in the manger and his second coming in glory at the end of the age. And so the things that Jesus says to the disciples here in the upper room are the very same things that are meant to help us in the time in which we live. And here in John 14, 1 through 3, the particular truth that Jesus wants to get across to us is very simple, and it's this. He says, don't worry. Don't worry. Even though I'm going away, I will come again. I'm going away with a purpose, and I will come again to receive you. I will come back for you. As a general rule, I think it's fair to say that Christians don't think enough about Jesus' return. And it dawned on me this week uh, as I was working on this message, uh, I don't think, up until I started working on the message, I don't think I consciously thought about the return of Christ at all this week until yesterday, you know, Friday or yesterday. And that's not not the way it ought to be. Uh, I mean, there ought not to be days and weeks going by that we don't stop and think about the fact that Jesus is returning. So I I think it's fair to say that Christians don't think enough about Jesus' return, and there's probably a lot of reasons for that. One, we're probably too comfortable here. You know, in places where persecution is rampant, Christians tend to think more about the coming world. 
maybe there's an overreaction to some of these end times prophets who seems like all they ever talk about is the second coming of Christ, and we've kind of overreacted to that to where we don't even talk about it much at all. So maybe there's some overreaction there. But whatever the case, it tends to be a neglected truth even among mature believers. And to the degree that we neglect it, to the degree, degree that we neglect thinking about the coming, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, to that degree, we are simply out of step with the Christianity of the New Testament. Now listen to Peter in 1 Peter 1. He says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope completely on that, on the grace that's coming when Jesus comes again. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. First Thessalonians 4, verse 16. Paul's speaking to these Thessalonians about the return of Christ. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, <laughs> with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. But then notice what he says. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You see, this thing of the second coming of Christ is not just some abstract doctrinal truth. This is practical stuff that we ought to be using to comfort one another with. Jesus is coming again. Comfort one another with these words, Paul says. Even our celebration of the Lord's Supper is meant to have a forward-looking element to it. Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 11, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, until he comes. So in the Lord's Supper, we look back to Jesus' death on the cross, but we also look forward to his return. So again, I say to neglect this truth is to be out of step with the New Testament. And it's to neglect one of the precious jewels of comfort and encouragement that the Lord Jesus Christ has specifically given to his church to help us in this time between his first and second coming. But another thing that we miss out on, it's not just encouragement that we miss out on when we neglect this. There's another danger, and it's this. We tend to forget when we neglect this truth of Christ's return, we tend to forget what full biblical salvation really is. And here's what I mean by that. I sincerely hope that Jesus returns in my lifetime. I hope he comes back right now. <laughs> Why not? Even so, come Lord Jesus. But if he doesn't, I'm going to die. And when I die, the Bible teaches that the non-physical part of me, the Bible sometimes calls it the soul, sometimes the spirit, but when I die, the non-physical part of me will immediately pass into the presence of God. And the Bible says that that is a state of existence that's far better than the one that I'm in right now. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1 and verse 21, Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this mortal body, 
If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So Paul's saying here, there's two modes of existence for the Christian. You can live on in the flesh, in this realm, in this mortal body, or to die Spirit, soul, passes into the presence of the Lord. Paul says in another place, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So compared to my present existence, it is very much better to have my body buried in the ground and to have my spirit or soul pass into the presence of the Lord. But what you need to realize, beloved, is that even though that state is very much better, it is not the goal of our salvation. Not even close. Not even close. The goal is resurrection life. The goal is to be a complete person with a perfected body and a perfected spirit dwelling in a new heavens and a new earth with the Lord Jesus Christ after his triumphant return. That's the goal. Anything less than that is a paltry, incomplete salvation. Paul says in Philippians 3, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state, transform this physical body into conformity with the body of his glory. Romans 8, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption. See, we're, we're already children of God, but we're not yet totally adopted. We're not yet fully sons and daughters of God. That's, that's, we're awaiting that. And, but listen to what Paul says. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption. What does he mean? As sons, the redemption of our body. So we're awaiting this redemption of our body, and it's not until our body, our physical body, is totally redeemed that we're going to be fully sons and daughters of the living God. And then one last passage here, and let's turn to this one, 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15 and verse, and I'm, I'm belaboring this, beloved, because I think it's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking that when a person, when a Christian dies, that they've kind of, they've, they've uh, inherited the full salvation now that they're, they're going to receive. And it's not true, not even close. First Corinthians 15, verse 50, Paul says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This flesh and blood existence that we're in right now, this physical body, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. We're not all going to die. Not all Christians are going to die, but everybody's going to be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable, this physical body, must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, that is full biblical salvation. That is the salvation that Jesus lived, died, and rose again to secure for us. The perishable putting on the imperishable. The mortal putting on immortality. Death swallowed up in victory. But that salvation will not be complete for any Christian until the day when Jesus returns to the earth in power and in great glory. And when we neglect the truth of Jesus' return, we end up losing the reality then of what this full biblical salvation really is. I like the way that Horatio Spafford said it in his hymn. He said, But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. You see, when, you, when a Christian goes into the ground, they have not reached their goal. They finish their earthly course. By the grace of God, faithfully finish their earthly race. But that is not the goal, beloved. The grave is not the goal. The sky is the goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And then he goes on, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. So with the rest of our time here this morning, what I want to do is just take a few moments to consider these parting words of the Lord back in John chapter 14. I want us to take a few moments this morning to be reminded of His return, to not neglect it. Take a few moments to fix our hope completely on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's not my intention here to do a verse-by-verse exposition. I just want to share with you some things from this passage that I find particularly encouraging. And we'll consider these under four headings. First of all, the purposefulness of Jesus' departure and return. That's kind of a mouthful, but I can think of a better way to say it. The purposefulness of Jesus' departure and return. And then secondly, the characteristics of the place that Jesus is taking us to. Thirdly, the amazing grace on display in this passage. And then fourthly, the ultimate blessing of Christ's return. So once again here, let's read John 14, 1 through 3. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And the first thing I want us to consider here is the purposefulness of Jesus' departure and return. And when you consider the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, one thing that stands out is that he never acted without purpose. Never. You never get the sense that he's just kind of wandering around, wondering what to do next. You never get that feeling. It's just the opposite. He came into the world with purpose. John chapter 6, he said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He was conscious of the fact, when he came down from heaven, he was conscious of the fact that he was coming here to fulfill a purpose. He was coming here to fulfill a plan. I I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him 
who sent me. And then after coming into the world, he lived his earthly life with resolute purpose. Think of how many times in the Gospels it says something like, Jesus must do this. He must do that. Many times in the Gospels it uses that kind of language. He must do this or that. Purpose. And then at the end of his life, Jesus could say to his father in John chapter 17, he could say, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Again, he was conscious of the fact that he had come into this world to accomplish a purpose, a work. And at the end of his life, he could say with faith and with truth that I've accomplished that work, Father, that you've given me to do. And in the same way, beloved, his departure was according to purpose. Look again at verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place. His leaving wasn't aimless. He goes with a purpose. And we see in the next verse that he will also return with a purpose. Verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I will come again. Purpose. And we'll talk more about the specifics of these verses here in a minute, but the first thing we need to appreciate here is just the simple reality that everything Jesus does is purposeful and certain. Everything that he does is purposeful and certain. Do not let your heart be troubled. Why? Because I'm going away for a reason. And it's with your best interests in mind, and it's for your ultimate good that I'm leaving, he's saying. I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. Furthermore, Jesus says, I will come again. I will come again. I just love the simplicity of that and the rock-solid certainty of that. I will come again. Beloved, when Jesus says, I will, it's a done deal. I mean, there it is, right? It's done. There is nothing in the universe more certain than the I will of the Son of God. Nothing. So as we live in this often difficult time between the cross and the second coming, we need to draw encouragement from these two truths. First, that Jesus left with a purpose, which was to prepare our place in heaven. And second, that he will come again to take us there. And whether that's today, tomorrow, whether that's 100 years from now, he will keep his word. He can no more break his word than he could cease being God. That's how certain it is. So the purposefulness of his departure and return. Secondly, the characteristics of the place that Jesus will take us to. Uh, Consider some of the characteristics here that Jesus brings out about this place that he's taking his people to. What is this heavenly place like? Well, first of all, Jesus says it's a house. John 14, 2. He says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. Of course, he's not talking about a literal physical structure. He's talking about heaven as the place where God dwells, the place where God makes his home. This is God's house that he's taking us to. Nevertheless, I think he uses the word house here so that we understand that Jesus is returning to take us home. House, home. He's returning to take us home. He uses that language for our benefit. If you ever have the feeling as a Christian that you don't really belong here in this world, then you're feeling rightly. (laughs) Do you ever feel homesick? You should. This world is not our home. In fact, Jesus said that we are not of this world even as he was not of this world. 
We're not pretending that we don't belong here. We really don't belong here. You don't. If you're a believer, it's an objective fact. You just don't. Peter says we are aliens and strangers here. Paul says, again, our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we belong. That's where our citizenship is. That's our home. Now get this. When Jesus returns then to take us to the Father's house, this is so encouraging, he's not taking us from our home to a strange place. It's just the opposite. He's taking us from a strange place, a place where we don't fit in, to our home, to a place where we do fit in, to a place where we do belong. So we, we tend to think it's just the opposite of that. It's like he's taking us from a familiar place where we belong and we fit in down here to a strange land far away that we know nothing about and that is mysterious to us. It's going to be just the opposite. It's going to be going, you're going home. You're coming home. But this isn't just a house. It's not just a home, Jesus says. It's the Father's house. It's the Father's house. Well, what is this father like? I mean, no one would want to go home to a father who was grim, demanding, unkind, unloving. No one would want to go home to a father like that. So what is this father like? Well, Jesus tells us, doesn't he, right here in the context. Look again at verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What's Jesus saying? What Jesus is saying, he's saying this, I'm coming again to take you to my Father's house, but don't worry. I am just like this Father, and this Father is just like me. All of the love, gentleness, kindness, joy that you have seen in me also fills the heart of the Father in whose house you're going to dwell. That's what he's saying. What other characteristics does this place have, this heavenly home? Well, Jesus says it has many dwelling places. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. I think some translations say many rooms, many dwelling places, many rooms in this house. Many mansions is another translation, yeah, which I kind of like that. It gives a little different feel, doesn't it? Many mansions. (laughs) Many rooms, many dwelling places. The emphasis here is on the fact that there is room for every believer in this house, room for every Christian. No one's going to be left out. No one's going to get to heaven only to find out that there's no room in the end. It's not going to happen. There's many and Jesus says, if it, were, if it were not so, I would have told you. I would have told you there's not enough room. But there's many dwelling places in this house. There's many rooms, enough for everybody. And then lastly, Jesus says this is a prepared place. It's a prepared home. Verse 2 again, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. So it's a prepared place. Jesus is going to prepare a place for us so that when we get there, it's already (laughs) totally prepared. Now, what exactly does this mean? Well, I I don't know. I don't know what it means. What does it mean that he's going to prepare 
a place? What does it mean that it's a prepared place? I'm not really sure. And the commentators weren't exactly helpful on this, as you often find. One commentator said this about this, this idea of Jesus preparing the place. He said, Jesus is engaged on some activity for us that passes our comprehension. <laughs> Which is really just another way of saying, I don't really know either. But, <laughs> but that's what you get sometimes with commentators. But let me speculate here just a bit for the sake of saying something rather than saying nothing because I think it is an encouraging thought regardless of what Jesus actually meant. All of these things that I'm going to share here I think are true. Um, First of all, it could be that Jesus wants to emphasize the fact that there will be nothing left for us to do once we get to our heavenly home. We, We cease from our works, in other words, in a negative sense. We can simply rest because he has already done all of the preparing in advance. And that's encouraging. Or it could be that Jesus uses the language here of preparing in order to encourage us again with the certainty of his return. Well, how how does that work? Well, it's unthinkable that Jesus would leave to prepare a place for someone and then fail to return to bring that person to that place. You see, Jesus doesn't operate that way. If he's going to go and prepare a place for someone, he's going to make sure that he comes back and brings that someone to that place. So it could be another way of emphasizing the certainty of his return. Lastly, it could be that Jesus is thinking here of being our forerunner in the sense of being the one who prepares our way to the Father's house. He's our mediator. He's, he is the way, verse 6. I am the way and the truth, and the life. See, Thomas, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way to get there? Jesus says, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In other words, we can only go somewhere if he has already gone there before us. We, his followers, can only go somewhere if he has already gone there for us. You say, wait a second, though. Jesus has already been in heaven before. He came down from heaven, right? He started out in heaven. He came down from heaven in the incarnation. He's already been there before. Yes, and this is incredible. Yes, but Jesus had never been to heaven as a man. He had never been to heaven before as a man. Now think of this. Up to this point in time in John 14, there had never before been a glorified flesh and blood human being in the Father's house. Never. Never. And there wouldn't be until Jesus dies, rises again, and ascends into heaven to be seated at the Father's right hand. That's the first time in all of the universe when there is a glorified flesh and blood human being entering into the gates of heaven. He's the firstborn among many brethren. He is the first glorified human being in a resurrection body to set foot in the Father's house. And because he went ahead of us, he prepared the way then for other glorified human beings in resurrection bodies to follow in his steps. He went and prepared the way for us. So that's a possibility, too, that he could mean by talking about a prepared place. Well, whatever it means, we know it's wonderful. And we know it's for our benefit. And that is encouraging regardless, regardless of how we understand it. We know it's for our benefit that he's preparing the place for us. 
So what is this heavenly place like? Well, it's the Father's house full of many dwelling places with each dwelling place already being fully prepared when we get there. Thirdly this morning, consider the amazing grace on display in this passage. Jesus says here that he's going to prepare a place and then return, but let's not forget who he was originally speaking these words to. Let's start with Peter. The same Peter who in the past Jesus had to rebuke as being a mouthpiece of Satan. And the same Peter who in a few short hours was going to deny three times that he even knew this man. Yet, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, Peter, and I will return. What about the rest of the disciples? Well, they're not much better. I mean, we could point to plenty of times in the past when they had manifested terrible unbelief and terrible immaturity. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And on top of that, in a few short hours, they also would abandon Jesus in his time of greatest need. Yet, Jesus says to these same disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will return for you. Now, what's the point here? The point is this, and it's glorious. If you are a child of God here today, neither your past failures nor even your future failures can alter the fact that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you and will return to take you there. Isn't that plain? Who is he talking to here? These disciples. Past failures abound. Future failures are going to abound in their lives. And yet he's saying to them, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will return. Again, neither your past failures nor even your future failures can alter the fact that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you and he will return to take you there. How can this be? Well, it can be because Jesus died. The cross, the cross is the answer to the how question. Jesus died. When Jesus hung on that cross, he bore within himself all the guilt of our past and future sins and failures. He absorbed like a sponge all the just wrath of God against those past and future sins and failures. And the result is that we now, as children of God, know nothing, nothing but grace. Nothing but grace. I like the way one song says it. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost... You looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Now all I know is grace. Paul says we are not under law but under grace. Grace is ruling and reigning over the Christian. And one of the blessings of that grace is that our sins, past, present, and future, are no longer barriers to God's blessing us. No more. Our past, think of that. I mean, do you realize that when you're talking about the gospel, that's what you're saying? The gospel is radical. Past, present, future sins, are even future sins, are no longer a barrier to God blessing you. 
What does Paul say in Romans 4? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Even taken into a, in terms of him blessing you, he, he doesn't say, man, I'd really like to bless this person, but those sins are there as a barrier keeping me from blessing them. No, he didn't even take those into account anymore in terms of blessing you. So Jesus can tell a denying Peter, and he can tell forsaking disciples, and he can tell you, and he can tell me that I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you to myself. And if that's not grace, then I don't know what is. Again, consider the amazing grace on display in this passage. And then fourthly this morning, consider the ultimate blessing of Christ's return. The Father's house, good. Many mansions, many dwelling places, many rooms, glorious. But secondary, very much secondary. The ultimate blessing of Christ's return is Christ himself. Now look at verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You see, where I am, there you may be also. That's the ultimate blessing of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is a heavenly home if Jesus isn't there? What is a prepared place without the presence of him who prepared it? Samuel Rutherford said it this way. He said, God, send me no more for my part of paradise but Christ, and surely I will be rich enough and as well heavened. I like that way of saying it. I'll be as well heavened as the best of them if Christ were my heaven. (laughs) Just give me Christ. For For heaven, give me Christ. For my part in paradise, give me Christ, and that's enough for me. And such is the attitude of every true child of God. Again, we read this earlier, but let me me repeat this from 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul says, the Lord himself, that's Jesus, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and... So we shall always be with the Lord. You see, he ends it all off with that. He's coming back. And so we shall always be with him. That's the ultimate blessing. Again, Rutherford in his famous hymn said it this way, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not on the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. O I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. But what's even more incredible here this morning is that the Lord's receiving of us to himself is not just the fulfillment of our ultimate desire as Christians, it's the fulfillment of his ultimate desire as well. 
Beloved, he's not simply returning to fulfill some kind of religious duty that he has to perform out of obligation. It's like, oh, now I've got to go and pick up those dirty, rotten sinners from earth, you know. He's returning because he loves us. He's returning because he wants to be with us. Again, listen to verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. See, the emphasis there, Jesus is saying, is I want you to be where I am. I'm coming to take you back, not so that you can kind of float around in a never-never land, but so that you can be with me where I am. Personal, intimate presence, communion, fellowship with the Lord. And then turn to John chapter 17. It's even more clear here. John chapter 17, verse 22 Of course, Jesus is praying here, and he ends his prayer this way, towards the end. John seventeen twenty two. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire... You see that word there? I desire. It's an inward compulsion that drove the Lord Jesus Christ to pray this way. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. But again, verse 24 just says it all, doesn't it? Father, I desire, I desire this. Beloved, he could have prayed for a lot of things here in John 17. He says, I desire that these disciples, that you, if you're a child of God here this morning, I desire that they would be with me where I am. And he will not rest, beloved. The Lord Jesus Christ will not rest until every word of that prayer is fulfilled. He won't. He's coming back. He's going to. I will return. As the song says, One day the trumpet will sound for his coming. One day the skies with his glories will shine. Wonderful day, my beloved one's bringing. My Savior Jesus is mine. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. Oh, glorious day. Do not let your heart be troubled. Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you this morning that you saw fit to speak these words to your disciples and to us to prepare us, Lord, for this time when you're not here in the flesh and to remind us that you are coming again to take us home, to be with you forever. Lord, I pray for those here who are battling sin and who are failing and struggling and feeling like it's hard to press on. Lord, I pray that they would be encouraged today to press on with you knowing that your grace is sufficient, knowing that every sin is paid for, and knowing that you will return again to take them home to be with you. Lord, encourage our hearts today. Help us to encourage one another. We thank you for your word that's living and active and still speaks to your church, even here in 2013. Thank you that you are the living God. Pray that you'd bless our time now as we fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.